Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast from the Blue Earth Summit, a movement and community driving positive action for our natural world. In this series, we'll bring you some of the highlight talks and conversations from our first summit in Bristol in October 2021. In this episode, From Blues to Blue Health. What's precious to you? It might be materialistic, a car, a house, or even your favourite pair of socks. Yet as we grow in society, maybe there's something more precious than meets the eye. Something more precious than the things we can buy. Perhaps it's something we see each and every day, but we don't quite realise it. Through a select panel that includes figures from a variety of areas, one thing is shared, their love of nature. From green spaces to blue, nature is wondrous, especially when related to subjects like mental health and culture. It's said that just two hours a week of getting into nature has significant effects on mental health, whether that be sitting on a park bench or swimming with sharks. Probably not the safest first choice though. It's all about being outside and doing what works for you. Nature not only frees the mind, but it brings people together, with many barriers apparent throughout society, such as socio-economic backgrounds and race, all-inclusive platforms should be more active than ever. So whatever the weather, come rain or shine, look around you once in a while, as it may unlock your mind. For this panel, Lucy Siegel was joined by Claire Etock, Project Manager for the Seas, Oceans and Public Health in Europe project at the University of Exeter, Tom Hewitt, Founder and CEO of Surfers Not Street Children, Nick Hounsfield, Chief Visionary Officer for Inland Surfing Destination The Wave and also Day 2 location for the Blue Earth Summit in 2021, and Hannah Green, surfer and author of Finding My Way Home, and Laura Crane, ex-pro surfer, model and former Love Island contestant. Welcome to From Blues to Blue Health, the transformative power of our most precious resource. Oh, I wonder what our most precious resource is. I think we're going to find out. Um, You know what? I think we'll do something a little bit different and we'll just let each of the panellists speak about their own sort of experience and uh, speak to this fact, the transformative power of our most precious resource. Claire, let's start with you. I'm suggesting that you do think that it does have a transformative power (laughs) and how do you quantify that, etc. Tell us what you know about that. I am really lucky in that the part of the university that I work for is quite unique. What it does is it takes all the academics who have their heads down looking at their own little widget, and there's lots of widgets, um, and brings them together. So I work in a a section that's got economists, um, ecologists, psychologists, all together working on um, the, the effects of nature and human health, which is really cool because during COVID, It's been one of the biggest things that I think have kept some of us with our heads slightly above the parapet, which is great. Um, We're lucky enough to have had some European funding and we've done some really big surveys. And when I talk big surveys, it's the stuff that gives us the statistics that should be able to change policy and government and our spending. And for me, personally, that's what it's all about. So the big surveys are stuff that goes across 18 countries where we're asking people... How do you travel to the coast? How do you use blue space? Is the fountain in your town the equivalent of blue space for you? Because there's lots of interesting information about uh, green space, but um, I'm coming here to hopefully tell you a bit more about blue space. And there's loads of good news, loads of good news. Oh, we look forward to that. We didn't have an enormous amount of good news on the last panel, so I'm really really up for some good news. Um, Tom, tell us about you and your experience of 
the sea and water. <laughs> well, I'm a surfer, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, I ran an organization in South Africa and Mozambique called Surfers Not Street Children. It's an organization that empowers street children and kids affected by street connectedness to be able to transform their lives. So the idea of the transformative within ocean, within blue space, within surfing is obviously something really close to my heart. My concern is that, um, or my particular interest is not only in how, say in this case, surfing can transform the lives of the kids we work with and of other people, but also how they can transform the culture of surfing and how we get away from the single narrative of what a surfer is. Nice. Tell us, Nick, um, well, tell us a bit about The Wave because it so, it's such an exciting project and what, 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 what it has meant for you to be able to bring The Wave to people. Um, yeah, so, yeah, my background's actually in healthcare, so I've been um, a surfer for 45 years. Um, it's being in the water is where, you know, where I definitely find my best self without, without a doubt. Uh, I was a healthcare practitioner for about 18 years, and I really understood or realised that there was a real disconnect in terms of people across different generations and the effect that that was having on their health and well-being, and then their, their lack of connection to the green spaces and, and the blue spaces. So wanted to set up some kind of destination, a place where people could go and actually get that connectivity, but also talk about um, you know, the food they eat, um, you, you know, the environment that they live in, and connect those people together. Uh, and so I set about building the wave so putting, literally bringing surfing inland for the first time so that we could actually bring that blue space and green space inland for the first time and be able to yeah, allow lots of people from different ages, backgrounds and abilities to use it. Uh, and that connectedness is really important on a personal level. Um, so I had a massive stroke last year and actually the wave that we built became my panacea, the, my medicine chest for getting well again. Um, and so, uh, so I'm now the, the biggest blue health advocate on the planet, I reckon. I think you probably are. It's so wonderful to see you here and have, us, have you with us today as well. Um, Hannah, you're a surfer. Uh, you've written a book. Tell us a little bit about your journey, your story. So at the end of 2018, uh, I ended up homeless. Um, and at the time, I was struggling really badly with my mental health, um, PTSD mainly from a pretty rough childhood. And I ended up staying in loads of really dodgy places and hostels, and uh, I was involved in drugs and drink. And um, basically, I was introduced to surfing kind of halfway through that. And eventually, that's kind of what got me out of the cycle of homelessness. I met some incredible people. It started off as like a... It's similar to the Wave Project. I'm sure you all know about the Wave Project, but for adults, um, ended up volunteering with the Wave Project. Um, and yeah, just surfing completely changed my life, completely saved my life. Um, thank you so much. Um, can you describe a little bit about the, the process? Because you, you know, you brilliantly distilled your story into like three sentences there, which is incredible when you think of everything that you've, that you've achieved and been through. But could you, could you feel it? Like, how soon did you know that the water and being in the water was going to have some sort of transform transformative effect on you? 
So I felt it straight away. Mm. At the time, I was struggling really badly with like flashbacks, anxiety, and things like that. And as soon as I was in the sea, that it was just different. Um, I was calm. I could think. I wasn't like constantly looking around uh, for danger. So it was instant in that respect. And then it was kind of over the next few days when I actually slept. At the time, I wasn't sleeping, and I was kind of like really wanting to get back in the sea. And nothing else, other than drugs at the time, nothing else made me feel like that. Um, so yeah, that's kind of I knew pretty much straight away. Yeah. Yeah. So you were like hyper vigilant, hyper aware all the time, and then you yeah. got this respite, and you were like, ah, oh, this this is working. Yeah. 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 How amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Um, hopefully, we'll learn more of your stories as you go along. But everybody, you must you must um, read Hannah's book as well. Um, Laura, tell us about yourself and your experience. What does the sea and being in in, in water mean to you? I mean, I don't really know how I can follow that because that's a sick story. You're a legend. It is but, um, I'm from North Devon. I was actually born in Bristol and then my parents. Um, we moved to North Devon when I was about six and just fell in love with surfing, the ocean, everything about it. I used to do like a million different sports as a kid. Mum was just driving me around all the time. Um, but surfing was just the one that I really struggled at school and wasn't very academic. And it was the one thing that was like my superpower. Like I always had this thing that I could go do before school or after school and then... Very quickly, by the time I was like 12, I got sponsored by Billabong, which was like a dream. Like if anyone here has watched Blue Crush, which I feel like probably a lot of people have, I wanted to be Amory so bad. <laughs> um, so yeah, getting sponsored by Billabong was like huge and just like the biggest dream ever as a kid. And then um, became British champion, left the UK and kind of just like traveled from the age of like 14 till three years ago, 23? Yeah, three years ago, 23. Um, and just had like the most incredible time, like lived my childhood dream and just met the most incredible people. And then it kind of like all sort of caught up with me at about the age of like 21. Um, I really struggled with an eating disorder for a long time throughout my competitive career, which I did a pretty good job of pushing under the carpet and um, just kind of getting on with it. And like most athletes in any sport, you kind of just push your mental health to the side a lot of the time, which we're all getting better at, so big ups to us. But um, yeah, then just kind of had to take a step away from competitive surfing because my like initial love for surfing, which was so strong, like really started to go and I used to really resent it. And those 6 a.m.s at the beach in the winter were not so pretty at that point. So. Um, yeah, I just kind of had to take a step back and I went home to Croyd and kind of just got my eating disorder like back under control and was backwards and forwards with it for a long time. Um, and then went into this like super small TV show that a few of you I guess know of. Um, and that was like me kind of just like coming back and being like, you know what, I'm ready to like share kind of like my journey because I was like always struggling with whether I was like a skinny model for the brands that I was working for or I was an athlete and I was kind of at that place and when I was just ready to be like hey I'm Laura I'm strong and there's probably like a little girl that needs to see somebody on TV that has like big shoulders and isn't so like good with their hair you know I still scrape it back like this is still like three years on but um yeah, that's pretty much my story. And now just kind of trying to get more people into surfing for what I first started doing it for and feeling that love and seeing it through other people. Like your story is so incredible because that's something that like I would love to give to other people. And um, yeah, I just started these retreats, which we did in Croyd 
three weeks ago um, and they were a hit and everyone loved it and just said how kind of disconnected they felt from their phones and devices and that is my job so it's so nice to like hear people kind of having that same benefit from the ocean. And just tell us a little bit about the retreats so... Um, so they are open to everyone, all ages, any sex, um, and they are four days in my hometown um, with a yoga instructor. We have like some therapist that's going to come down as well and just like offer it if you want to like chat to somebody. Um, but just a place where you can be like completely you. You can meet new people that are like have similar interests. If maybe you don't have like a friend that wants to go learn to surf with you, you can all kind of just make a new crew down there and yeah eat good food learn about the environment while we're there look after the beach while it looks after us very good very good lovely to have you with us I, I have big shoulders myself yeah so. you go girl there we go. <laughs> can't surf or it's swim okay. very well but never yes. mind anyway yeah exactly I like that um so Claire we've heard these amazing stories and you also promised us some great news and great outcomes from the research um does it tally with some of the stuff that we've heard, your findings? It tallies, and the brilliant thing is it tallies for everybody. So it's not just those of us who are close to water, close to the beaches, have got enough money to get the train or have got our own car to get to the beaches. It works for everybody. So the study where we've just published some data says that um, on average, at a population level across all of Europe then two hours a week of getting into nature will have significant effects on your health and well-being. And so getting into nature, it can be anything. It can be sitting on a bench. It's not necessarily catching Nate Footer that's probably in Laura's purview, you know. It can be, it can be anything, but it's about being outside and connecting to nature in a way that works for you. I've got to say, because I am a scientist, that we didn't include gardening in that study. Um, and that's because some of the data that came back said some people see gardening as a chore as well as, you know, go out and sit in, sit in the bench, which is great. The other thing that's really cool, and every time I talk to one of my science colleagues, they tell me something fascinating. So somebody told me yesterday, um, the blue can mean anything to anybody, anywhere. And he was surprised to find that actually... The guys who go ice fishing in frozen lakes in Finland have the same kind of health and well-being effects as somebody who's in a town and sits next to a fountain having a coffee. That is wow. pretty amazing, isn't wow. it? The other thing that's really cool... Yeah. Sorry, I'm full of no, really cool it. stuff. Carry on. Yeah. So another thing that's really cool is that um, we did another study where it was about um, the distance that you lived from the sea and the effect it had... And they took out all the variables. So the variables about whether you had a job, um, what socioeconomic group you were in, whether you were married, all the things that can skew the data. So they took all of these things out. And um, I think it's probably pretty sensible that the people who live closest to the sea have the best mental health and well-being on average. The important thing is that it was the most significant was for the lowest socioeconomic group. So for the poorest people, it has the biggest difference. And that's, that is amazing. And, and it's logical when you think about it. If you've got enough money, you can fly off to the Maldives and surf or sit out in the sea. But if you haven't... Now, one of the things that I'm really keen on, and I don't know if anybody here can help, it's about how do we take the data that we create in the science teams and make a real difference? Yeah. 
So who is talking to the councils who's saying, you're just cutting the bus service that goes from your local council estate to the beach? Because actually, that would have the biggest effect on the most amount of people who potentially need most of our resources and most of our help, mm. and potentially, and a third study, is that it makes a significant difference to if you have mental health disorder, a common mental health disorder, if you're on anxiety or depression medication, it can make a difference as well. Mm. But that's only if it's not pressured. Right. And so when I say that, it's... So there's a big movement at the moment, isn't there, about social prescribing, gout getting people out there and doing things and there's loads of that that is brilliant and we have just at the centre got a handbook on nature prescribing it's free to download so if you if you guys are into that please download it it shows you some good things to think about but one of the effects we've found on one of our studies is that if you are on medication for anxiety or depression and suddenly somebody pressures you to go out into nature the effect of the nature being good for you is lessened. So there's nuances with all of this stuff. So those of you like me, you know, sometimes I need to be persuaded to go outside. With, you know, it's rainy, it's horrible. My dogs want to go, I don't want to go, you know. Mm. I always come back feeling better, but that's not the case for everybody. Yeah. So there's nuances in all yeah. of these studies. Yeah, it's super interesting. I think if councils, you know, sent you around to do little talks then everyone would be on the bus to the beach immediately hannah let me ask you this just off the back of what claire said i want to i want to just understand a little bit more about um the gateway to you getting in into the water and into surfing because if we know if we spend two hours a week in nature you know then we're going to have much better health but i would imagine that if you're feeling a certain way that would feel like an impossibility so you need a bridge in between who will get you into that, into the water, into whatever you're doing. How did it work for you? So one of the, like the youth homelessness charities at the time referred me to this new surf therapy program, which doesn't actually exist anymore, um, unfortunately. And yeah, I was terrified. I, the first week I didn't actually turn up. Um, and the, the week after it was going to be the same, I wasn't going to turn up. Someone had to come and literally pick me up and almost drag me. So yeah, it was, I guess because it was so unknown. Um, I'd always played sport, mainly football, um, but surfing was always something I'd kind of seen people doing and thought it looked really cool and never had the, never had the chance or the opportunity to, to try it. Um, but yeah, the, the, without that, you know, the, the lady from the charity, if she hadn't have offered to come and pick me up, then I'd have never, I'd never done it never done it and Tom I'm interested in uh, your organization and how you work because you're obviously a gateway to a lot of young people getting involved in the sport what what is your approach well firstly if if I had started the program just based on the kids that are at the beach we started in 1998 the program would have been for white children in South Africa and we made a, a very conscious decision that the program surfing was being incorporated into work for street children, which are right at the bottom of the pile. So if we had just said the program is for black children, even then the street children would never have had access. So it was really interesting to see that um, having street children in the program and then them developing 
uh, within Durban, which is where we were based and where we are based, uh, was not only an incredible road for them in their own lives, but it also changed the racial demographics of surfing in Durban. It opened it up for others. And so one of the things I would say is that the problem with all of this, and it's so positive, but there's one problem and that's that it's not a level playing field. So there's a lot of people who can't access. And there's two reasons. Um, one is economic. I think we're kind of aware that if you live next to the beach, you, you usually have pretty good means. There's so many barriers for people living away from the beach. Even if, for an example, say Barnstable to Croyd, um, so a UK example, you know, there are still barriers. There might be, you know, single parent issues, transport issues. There's all sorts of reasons why kids aren't at the beach ready to surf. And um, the other reason is cultural. So the, uh, back in the, in the 60s, the, the, the person I call the antichrist of surfing, Mickey Dora, um, basically created with others a culture of exclusivity. And this exclusivity meant that, um, and they also realized that they could make money out of surfing. And the industry basically was built on this idea of if you don't surf, don't start, the famous Michael Thompson gotcha advert. And so what they created with this identity that sold t-shirts, and the identity was that a surfer is blonde haired, blue eyed, male, straight. Kind of looks a bit like me, but um, <laughs> the reality is, that that is just one narrative, and that narrative was fed to us for uh, financial gains of the industry, and was and the media just compounded this, and so we've got this um, this cultural narrative of what it is to be a surfer. It is just so wrong because there are there are surfers of all different uh, racial. Uh, backgrounds, there are surfers in Africa, there are LGBTQ surfers, there's so many different types of surfers and until we're able to completely smash this single identity, there'll be a cultural barrier to people surfing as well. Because wherever there's a coast, there's surfers, right? And sometimes where there isn't a coastline, you're going to get there now. Apparently, yeah. So does that mean that, well, Sam Bleakley was on the panel two panels ago and 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 um he was he was making the point he's he's made some films of uh, surfers in west africa for mm -hmm. example um but he also made the point that i wanted to ask you about about um there's loads of people seem to be going outside because of covid in the uk and yet the kit that they have access to is plastic inflatable disposal disposable um, what are those things called paddle boards mm -hmm. and neoprene wetsuits and then and then the kit is also a barrier so mm -hmm. you've removed one barrier if you like mm -hmm. so you brought you brought the surf to the people yep and then what do we do about the other sort of barriers, including the kit. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the kit's a, a barrier. I mean, at, at the Wave, we, we supply that um, for anyone who's coming along. Um, so that should, that should remove that barrier. Um, although there's an economic barrier for people, you know, we have to, you know, charge people to come and use the lake and, and come surfing. And so... How much is it? Um, it varies between anything sort of 30 to 60 pounds, depending on what sessions you're doing. But the, the way that we... We're now breaking down that. Basically, there shouldn't be any reason why nobody um, can't come to the wave. Um, so if you've 
just got a fiver, if you've just got one quid, and sometimes people who don't have any money whatsoever, what we're doing now as a, a, a new sort of um, social impact um, uh, program that we've been running for the last nine months, or well, pretty much since um, uh, March, is that we're now teaming up people who really want the social impact to be um, created. And so we're teaming, I guess, philanthropists to come along and go, right, this is an amazing program, inner city um, kids coming, or I mean, a whole variety of social impact causes, and, and teaming them up together so that we, we contribute to them being able to come, we get a benefit, somebody to come along and help fund it, and then that, doesn't, that means there's no barrier to entry. And I can't remember, I'd have to, it's somewhere around about 280 to 300 people coming through and accessing surfing who definitely wouldn't have the chance normally um, and so we're just logging that uh, making sure that we're collecting research off the back of it and go again and scale it up and go again because we, we don't we don't fully um, sell all of our surf slots so we have this capacity where we can then go right how can we team up with people who need access would would really benefit from access and let's start to reduce those barriers one, for instance, cultural barrier. Um, you know, we've got some uh, amazing Somali women came down and, and they were trying out uh, the sea suit from Finisterre that Tom and his team have been working on so that that cultural barrier is also being lessened or reduced or got rid of. Um, so, you know, that then, if we can then sell those kind of suits at the wave, that then is something that we can potentially break down those cultural barriers, which is so important. Um, Laura, I want, you, I want you to talk a little bit about, um, so you went on Love Island, um, and it, it is just about the most mainstream box office show left on British TV, really. It's the only thing that really, really maybe Gogglebox as well, delivers like an audience like that. What sort of um, reception did you get, and how far did you feel that you were able to push, not just surfing, but being active, being being a young, fashionable person, getting in the sea and, you know, getting amongst it? Um, I mean, it was crazy. Like, mm. the first thing was, it was just so much more than I thought it was ever going to be. I was living in Portugal at the time that I literally flew to Love Island and just, like, arrived. I'd had, like, three weeks just chilling, like, in Portugal, surfing with my best friend, just, like, going up and down the coast, to literally just being, like, thrown into this show that I didn't really understand, like, how big the show was until I got off the plane after it had, like, happened. And just, like, all these people, like, knew who I was. And I was like, wait, what have I done? And I just remember that instant, like, fear that I had been myself and th that's what I wanted to do and I was so passionate about like whatever they wanted me to be like when I first walked into Love Island they told me I had to wear a bikini and a pair of cork heels like girls cork cork heels yeah like wedge heels oh, yeah oh yeah with yeah. my bikini yeah and I was like guys I'm sorry I would prefer to go home now like that's something like I want to be here and be me and that's the first thing I can't do with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I think that was like the first, I needed that to happen because after that they were like, okay, fair. 
the other girl's gonna have to walk in barefoot and she was fuming she was livid because she had her outfit like ready um and I think that was a moment for me where I was like okay cool I can be this person I can be like this strong athlete that I am now proud to be that I wasn't maybe proud to be like three years ago so um yeah it was a big challenge for me and then coming out I think well I mean everyone knows the press that that show's had in the last few years with suicides and things and it's so heavy, honestly. Like, it is so crazy to just go from being, like, literally no one, like, to going into that show and having everybody, like, have their opinions about you. I would, like, touch wood till this day, have been super, super lucky, and the support I had was, like, incredible. And everybody says that was because I was, like, very me, and I didn't really, like, wear too much makeup and things like that, and I got into, like loads of like tabloids for not painting my nails and things and those were all things I was proud of when I came out but for some people that was like a really hard thing to hear so yeah I think just basically like being that kind of person and then coming back out and trying to still stay on my straight and narrow of who I was and making sure that like I didn't change my narrative of like who I was because of the show that was the hardest thing yeah 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 so so glad you were someone before you went in by the way you weren't no one before yeah, you went no, in no but you know what I mean yeah. like yeah. people in our yeah. like world like I knew yeah. you know we knew of each other and stuff like that but it's a whole yeah you like yeah. my little brother's friends were going to school and being like oh I know your sister now and he's yeah. like yeah but she's lived here always yeah <laughs> it's an extraordinary level of fame sudden fame isn't it and well done for not uh, at all um taking their the, the media's you know ways of trying to shame people afterwards for not painting their nails etc I mean it's absolutely toxic isn't it I'm still here I'm <laughs> <laughs> very good my nails terrible <laughs> um um yeah I mean it's it's it how much of how much was it did you want to get back in the water as well was it like did you need to get back to nature after that which is probably the experience which is like antithetical to nature in so many yeah. ways I mean for anybody that did watch that season, I lived in that pool. Like, I was in that pool every day. I swam, like, 60 lengths of this, like, 10-metre pool every single morning because it was the only place where I'd, like, figured out I didn't have to have my microphone on so no one could ask me questions. I couldn't speak to anyone else. I'd be like, Laura, like, haven't had that much airtime. I'm like, I'm going to need to swim. And then we can, like, talk about me getting airtime. Like, this is really important for me because, like, I'd had my struggles with mental health and I knew what kept me, like good you know and having that little like paddling pool literally swimming pool like was just so necessary it's a big thing yeah yeah it would have wound the producers up as well brilliant well done well done to you (laughs) okay I'm afraid we've got to leave it there um thank you so much Laura Hannah thank you Nick thank you Tom thank you Claire that was amazing thank you and thank you to all of you thank you We hope that conversation's inspired you and given you some proper, actionable insight. Please look out for the next episode. And if you haven't signed up for the film versions, please visit the Blue Earth website at blueearthsummit.com. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.